Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Hey everyone, this is Anime World Order, episode 137, almost our 10th year. No, we were doing, and, uh, that, that's going to be December. Yeah, that's, that's why I said almost our 10th year. I'm not sure if we should do anything special for that. Anyway, con season is upon us, so uh, that's been keeping us busy. But anyway, we are back on track with this episode, episode 137. I am Gerald Rathkolb, and with me as always... This is Daryl Surratt. And this is Clarissa. What are we going to be reviewing this episode? Today we are talking about a very recent anime, just like the last season or so, called Shirobako, which is an anime about making anime. What's in the box? <laughs> What's in the box? Become kind of a sensation in Japan mm -hmm. and with anime fans, and possibly for good reason, we will see in the review. Hi, Krispy Kremes. Uh, yep. <laughs> so how are you guys doing? Do you guys have anything not depressing to say what you've been doing recently? I guess, I don't know if it's considered depressing or not, but Good Old Games just re-released TIE Fighter, the, like the real version of it. I've been finally dusting off my old joystick and throttle and playing some of that and realizing that, yeah, it has been 20 years since I played this game and um, hmm. how time flies when you're aging. So I don't know if it's depressing or not. It's just, you know, one of those <laughs> things where the game is still really good but I'm replaying this old game instead of, like, playing any of the myriad of new things that are out. I remember when TIE Fighter and X-Wing came out, and they shocked the industry, basically. That was back when LucasArts made some of the best PC games out there. Mm -hmm. That's a shame, because they don't really do a lot of cool stuff anymore. Yeah, I mean, right now there's a bunch of elevated Star Wars interest because of, you know, we've got a movie coming out this year and, you know, right around the time we're recording this. And I guess the nerds decided that May 4th would be particularly Star Wars noteworthy. So it just seemed uh, apropos. I try to think back, like, what the last LucasArts thing that they did was that wasn't Star Wars that was still pretty good. But, uh, to me, it's like it's, Grim Fandango, and that's like mm. 17 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. They dominated a lot of my PC gaming back in the 90s. How about you, Clarissa? Anything fun, not depressing? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I have anything not depressing. I sat in on a podcast that's uh, done by a coworker of mine called the Pseudo-Random Podcast. That episode is not yet up. It'll probably be a week or two, maybe, before it actually gets up on the internet. But at some point, you'll be able to listen to that. Great. And yeah, we are just back from Florida Anime Experience. Thank you very much for inviting us there. And we did some panels there. Most of them went pretty well. I was accidentally cut off of the schedule, but I persevered and a couple of people did show up to it. So I'm happy with that. It was a fun little con. Well, with a couple of rather interesting uh, incidents that happened during it. I don't know if that's public knowledge or not. <laughs> we'll wait for the blog post to announce the story. Uh, right. Make yeah. it really lyrical and narrative. I did find it interesting, though, to show like how out of touch I am when I'm at the convention. For that particular con, there just happens to be a lot of podcasters in Florida. So they said, hey, 
all you Florida podcasters, you want to do panels. And then they gave us like the one like hour and a half panel where all the podcasters get together and sit down. And that's actually on YouTube. They uh, There's video of it. It always comes dangerously close to a larger number of people on the panel than in the audience. Yep. This time it wasn't quite so dramatic, but I did find it interesting, though, that there were some podcasts out there that primarily existed through YouTube, and some of them have like 2.1 million views on a single video. And I think 2.1 million views exceeds like the total amount of people who have looked at anything I have ever done, uh, ever. Yep. Yeah, probably. I mean, YouTube is where you go. So I think clearly, should we pack it in then? And I don't think defeat? so, because the, the, when you look at the video... And it's like, okay, yeah, 2.1 million people would look at this, but this is nothing I would ever want to create or watch myself. And that's why I'm out of touch. <laughs> yeah, a lot of podcasts, some of which we are friends with and are familiar with, others we had no clue existed. And so it was, you know, new for us. And I'm sure it was the same that a lot of these people didn't know who we were, even though I guess we're the longest running podcast in Florida about anime. We're gaining in on the longest still running anime podcast. <laughs> That was an interesting panel. I didn't know that there was as much hate for Ninja Slayer as there was. Well, that's all I knew. I mean, as much as I love Ninja Slayer, you can just look at the Japanese viewing numbers to see like, oh, a million people viewed episode one on Nico Nico alone. And then you go to the second episode and it's like a dramatic drop. A lot of people didn't realize what the joke was going to be and how the joke was very important that it'd be that. And they all felt betrayed. And so a lot of people, a whole lot of people thought legitimately it was going to be the next Kill a Kill as opposed to the next Inferno Cop. And especially when a lot of those people have no idea what Inferno Cop even is. I believe Inferno Cop just got onto Crunchyroll, even though I would think being on YouTube would be the place to be. But I guess if people don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. Yeah, the thing about YouTube is you can, again, look at the viewership numbers for the first episode of Inferno Cop. And then even the first to the second, it's like a huge drop as far as just like, oh, wow, this is going to be like something great. And it's like, what the heck is this adult swim cut out nonsense? I don't want this. And just <laughs> out of there. So, yeah, shame. Huge, I, I, a huge hostility towards Ninja Slayer. I was surprised. I, I didn't expect a lot of people to like it, but I didn't think it would be like the most hated thing hate next to Sword Art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of the most divisive shows, because I guess there are still people who are holding out for like, yeah, Sword Out was great, but largely people have turned against that show. I would like, not be surprised if, if a third season came out and it would be hugely popular still, though. No, I wouldn't be surprised either. Because apparently the Toonami broadcast of Sword Art did not lose a huge number of viewers once it got into the brother fucking. <sighs> there were no complaints, apparently. What is wrong with people? I don't know. Uh, anyway. We should make a dent in some of these emails. We are up to date. I'm going to read an email from May 11th, 2014. <laughs> so a year ago. Pretty much a year ago. This was written in by Ashley Gilbert. She says, what's up, AWO? My name's Ali, and I've been into anime for about three years now. Four uh, now Ali, that we're reading it. Yeah. Well, I hope she's still an anime fan now. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of stuff like Revolutionary Girl Lieutenant, Sailor Moon, Black Lagoon, Ghost in the Shell... Rose of Versailles, Card Captor Soccer, Princess Tutu. So basically, I like shows with awesome ladies kicking ass. I also run an anime club at my local library with my friend. In case you're wondering, my friend is a self-proclaimed otaku who hasn't watched any anime before the 90s, constantly snubbing anything Western animated and has never even heard of Osamu Tezuka. And whose favorite anime ever is Sword Art Online. 
but I still like her anyway. My club is rather small, with only 8 to 10 members, including myself and my friend. We didn't even start the club, we just took it over from a founder, a Caucasian dude named Neko. Honest to God, his name was Neko. He left because he had a job or some bullshit like that. In fact, when, all, when he sucked out all the funds from the library and that the library had saved for the club. Anime drama! I love this stuff. Anyway, now we all meet once a month to chat, have trivia contests, uh, treasure hunts with Gunplas, Sailor Moon figurines, and of course watch anime. Which brings me to last month's meeting where the library's Wi-Fi was being extremely slow and the anime refused to load on my friend's laptop. I suggested we listen to your podcast and Mike Tools review of Garzi's Wing, which I saved in my iPod, and needless to say, everyone laughed their asses off. Mind you, I had not watched Garzi's Wing yet, and would not until our next meeting, which was this last week. It was glorious. Never had I heard so much fun, cracking, dirty jokes, doing a spot-on impersonation of that you're-a-holy-warrior bitch, and singing Wings of My Heart in unison with my brethren. Now, AWO, I must not say thank you, but also ask you... If you have any other atrocities I can show, preferably something under two hours and not too graphic. We are right next to the children's section, after all. Not that I care. I love guarding children for life. P.S. M.D. Geist is a go for the next meeting. So M.D. Geist is apparently acceptable to show at this library location next to the children's <laughs> section. Which has sex in it. Nudity, and in gore, the whole nine yards is an M.D. Geist, and that one's okay. Yeah. By the way, if they want, like, really just ridiculous stuff now, it seems like everybody has seemingly abandoned g Reco, the new Gundam show by Yoshiyuki Tomino. Even the, Tomino the sp- in the post-show interviews is like, yeah, it's not that good. <laughs> it's, it's everybody's it's fault but mine, but it's not that good. It's hilarious to, like, watch people talk about this because... I might need to at least watch a little bit of For it. For context, g Reco and Garzi's Wing are by the exact same guy. Right. Just this in is, case uh, that, that needs some reiteration that Yoshiki Tomino, creator of Mobile Suit Gundam, also created Garzi's Wing. Right. Garzi's Wing and that universe is the stuff that he really likes. He's kind of sick and tired of Gundam, but Gundam, you know, pays the bills, I suppose. Yeah, G-Reco, which is the newest Gundam show next to uh, Gundam Build Fighters Tribe. Yeah, it's short for Reconquista in G, but people yeah. just say G-Reco for short. It's, yeah, it's hilarious because I have dedicated Gundam fans and Yoshiyuki Tomino believers, and most of them have pretty much abandoned the show. No one can tell me what exactly the plotline of the show is or what the relationships between the characters are. Apparently, the show does these things where a character will start to talk about some really important plot points, and then it will just cut away, and you won't hear that. Don't Gundam shows and all pretty much have the same plot, though? Not to Yoshiki Tomino, they don't. <laughs> no. You know, what's ever going on in his mad, syphilitic mind is the important part here. I don't know. Also, I don't mean to suggest that Yoshiki Tomino has syphilis. I just mean that he acts like he does. Um uh-huh. <laughs> But it's one of those things where, I mean, we brought up the topic of YouTube right before reading this email. And it seems that a lot of these popular YouTube outlets seem to gravitate on answering the question posed in this email. Like, what's like that weird bad thing that you can show for a laugh because of whatever? And it seems that they've all sort of mined the same ground Especially things like Garzi's Wing and that sort of stuff that we've been talking about for many years now. It looks like a whole new generation has seen it on YouTube in one form or fashion. Uh, I look at the view count on Bao, and it's kind of incredible to see how many uh, hundreds of thousands of people now uh, know that Bao has a laser cannon. 
But I guess at some point they've run out of things to mine. And so they either start picking any old thing. What could we suggest that is contemporary that would be that? And maybe G Reco is probably the closest. I think if there was a weird dub of G Reco, it would be like a definite slam dunk because you know that nobody could possibly deliver these lines in a credible way. I think the important part to kind of hit it home with G Reco is you have to watch an episode. And then at the end of that, discuss that episode. See if people can figure out what happened. What was the plot and what did the characters do? That's kind of the important part of G-Reco because apparently no one can figure this yeah, out. Yeah, especially some like the quotes from people. Like they actually went to Toshio Okada, who still has cred as being like the Ota King, co-founder of Studio Gainax. And he was like, G-Reco is really bad. And it's, it's yep. difficult to follow and no kids would understand this show. And then Tamino is like, I would grade this on a scale of one to a hundred. I'd give it a 15. And that's Tamino Jeez. saying that about his own show. <laughs> and this is crazy because Tamino, it's not like he was heavily constrained on the show. In fact, he was going on and on about how this was going to be the show for the new young generation. But here's the this thing. This is going to be the show. Like, to him, he doesn't understand why the show doesn't make sense. Like, we keep harping on the fact that nobody knows who anyone is or why anyone's doing anything. But in Tamino's mind, he thinks that this is like the most strictly logical show ever. That's his quote. People don't respond to stories made with cold logic. If the logic is overpowering, it won't be a story you can be emotionally attached to. That's all. After episode 19, we improved, so it became a little easier to watch. But gosh, it was too late. So... He thinks like it makes perfect sense. And and then he just like, oh, everyone hates this. Let me course correct at 19. But like he says, the people I'd most want to see it probably didn't because most people get caught up by the action scenes. The people he most wants to see it are the guys in the cabinet of the government, the nuclear energy guys. That's who he wants to see this show, not the children of the world. He wants this to like shake up the Japanese government. I remember the big thing he was saying, this is not for otaku either. This was definitely not going to be an otaku show. And if you course correct at episode 19 and your show is 26 episodes long, you've got a failed show. That's the end of it. Um, He predicts, though, 50 years from now, they will vindicate him. Just like how 50 (laughs) years from now, we will look back on George W. Bush's efforts in Iraq and be like, yes, (laughs) right. Terrific. Yep. (laughs) Then we'll see. We'll have perspective. We'll all hold up as G-Reco as like this misunderstood classic. We just didn't get it. I wouldn't go too too far into, you know, trying to find those ridiculous things to watch because there's very little that is made like that anymore. Also, do not be like these other... There's a lot of people out there who will just watch anything and try to make it bad. Just with comments or try to see the worst side of it just with, you know, MST3King. Yeah, don't, the, don't the, let the your... real magic to Mystery Science Theater 3000 that the world either forgot, never knew, or chooses to ignore is that to get the product that you see either on Rift Tracks or Mystery Science Theater 3000, they watch that movie at least three times. Usually it's like they, more than that. It's and many times. Several people yeah. each write jokes for each sitting and then they pick whichever one was the best joke and they use just that one it is a difficult and long writing process it is not it just is not just the this improvisational let's watch this thing and throw out something that a lot of people seem to think they can do in the comfort of their own movie theater <laughs> or library or club showing 
And right. it only takes one person to do it and not get shut down. And then the whole showing just turns to shit. But I guess that's what a lot of people do in these group viewing settings. Maybe in a library you can get away with less. But it sounds like they're able to sing Garzy's Wing song and get away with it just as they can watch MD Geist and get away with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know uh, when this club thing is being held, but oftentimes for things like this, it's usually like on the weekend at night, just before the library closes. And so like, usually nobody is around. That's kind of the ideal, I suppose. So I guess when you're next to the children's section, you're not going to offend too many people with MD Geist. But anyway, let us know what you did, because you did send this in about a year ago. Sorry about that, Ashley. I hope you're still listening to the show. See, do we want to do another email, or do we want to just get on with this review? I think we're going to do one more. Okay. This is from Anders Vane, and he says, Hey guys, I don't need to tell you you're the greatest, so I'll skip right to my two questions. I've been wondering about this for a while, and there's no one else I can ask, or would rather ask, besides AWO. I've noticed there is a trend in anime to portray the U.S. negatively. This is not to say Americans as a group are portrayed poorly, though this sometimes also happens, but that the U.S. is treated somewhat similarly to how we still treat Russia today, much in the same way that Russians are the default bad guy in Hollywood action movies. I, I feel the in- Since when? Like, how old is this guy? <laughs> well, this also came from about May, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, he doesn't say. I feel the United States is the default antagonist in many animes dealing with geopolitical situations. This is evidenced rather prominently in Ghost in the Shell, but not just there. There are instances in High School of the Dead, Summer Wars, and even Pat Labor, if I recall correctly, where the U.S. is presented as grossly irresponsible with its power, if not downright malevolent. Now, please don't think I'm butthurt over this. I'm not. I love this country, but I'm not exactly what you'd call a flag waver. The question is coming from a place of pure curiosity, not indignation. I want to better understand the Japanese attitudes towards the United States and was curious if this trend I believe I'm seeing in anime actually exists. And if so, does it reflect a larger trend amongst the Japanese people or just the viewpoints of some random anime creators? This is a fascinating question and I'm yet to see it addressed anywhere, so I'd love to hear your take on it. Well, I think it's just representative of what we're actually doing in the world. It's just kind of one of those things where the United States foreign policy (laughs) everywhere else is kind of fucked. And our media isn't going to point out, hey, maybe we shouldn't be drone striking the shit out of people that we don't really know too well or, you know, end up causing these collateral damages and doing all these things to preserve our interests, etc. That really kind of are why various places don't like us very much. I mean, when we look at it on our TV, it's they don't like us because we've got freedom. But I think it's just when you look at media made elsewhere in the world and they portray us as like these kind of malevolent you know military superpower bully kind of people maybe there's a grain of truth in that it's sad because oftentimes the american government's foreign policy is misconstrued as how regular americans act americans themselves are great people and some of the kindest people you'll ever meet in the entire world the government's policies around the world don't necessarily reflect that. Right. Well, I mean, um, th- I think that's usually the case, right? It's the, you know, the government is viewed as sort of a representation or extension of its people, except for right. maybe in some cases, you know, like maybe if it's like a dictator or something. I don't know that people actually believe that like Kim Jong-un represents the ideas of everybody living in North Korea. <laughs> but Exactly. Uh, but yeah. And also do recall that we nuked them. Uh, and... And there's also been ongoing, like, we have ongoing military bases in Japan, and so there's some tension around that. When it comes to, like, 
villains in media that is not American made or American funded, oftentimes the villain is American. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, if you see a lot of Turkish movies, the villains are American. American arms dealers or things like that. This is just reflective of just how America's portrayed, at least, you know, foreign policy wise around the yeah, world. I think it's the not... more interesting question would be less anime. Like if you really wanted to see that phenomenon in effect for real, you'd look at movies made by China because China, especially now, like post 97 or whatever, like the movies that used to be made in Hong Kong. Now it's all like mainland China kind of productions. They'll pin anything on America. They'll pin the burning oh, yeah. of Shaolin Temple on America, which I literally saw that. And there's a recent movie called Shaolin, which was like, wow, there hasn't been a movie about the Shaolin Temple made since Hong Kong got reverted back because the story is fundamentally about how the government is evil and oppressive. So, you know, those movies that were used to be all the rage, like those kung fu movies from the 70s and 80s and stuff, vanished. And then they released one. And then in that movie, the big thing at the finale is the scheming Americans... They're the ones who are really responsible for the destruction of Shaolin Temple. And so I'm like, wow, this is, oh, this is awesome that they just wow. throw this out there. Jackie Chan's got a little cameo in there as the wacky chef, but that's really like the evil Americans, glorious, uh, leaders kind of government sort of stuff. I don't see that level of mega jingoism in Japanese animation. Even like people love to throw show Aikawa under the bus because of like Angel Cop and that kind of stuff. But like when I look at things like say Kenji Kamiyama's stuff where America is like treated as like this sort of weird nebulous entity, that's probably not like the most absurd sort of thing to say. They always walk a fine line with the nationalism because of World War II. There's don't don't a be lot the of- academic tying everything back to World <laughs> War II, Clarissa. I know, but in this case, it actually does relate back to that. This is why, like right now, I don't know if anybody's been paying attention to the fact that Shinzo Abe is like visiting, meeting with President Obama, and yeah. there's a lot of protests. A lot of Japanese people are very angry at him because. He wants to increase Japan's military power. And so while Japan certainly, by the same token, hasn't admitted all of the things that they've done wrong in World War II, which is why a lot of other Asian countries don't like them very much, um, there's still also some like anxiety about being too militaristic or jingoistic. But it depends. You do still get it sometimes. Yeah, it's the fringe parties that you hear on on the news sometimes that are like the super, super jingoistic that usually don't get many seats, I should say. And I mean, their immigration is really restrictive and things like that. Their immigration is one of the worst ever. You You can be born there. Born in Japan. And for generate, if your parents were like two or three generations back Korean, you can still be Korean. Yeah. This is not the best course of action to take. On that subject, Daryl, usually what I see is like it's either America or Japan are the big enemies in Chinese movies. Mm. But considering Japan's history with China, I can understand that. Right. Well, like Ip Man. Yes. That's also a period piece set around the time during the occupation. So at least kind of makes some sense. That's true. But even modern ones, a lot of the Japanese people are villains Mm -hmm. in their work as well. We actually did a panel about this. Um, It wasn't necessarily like very academic. Uh, Daryl and I did a panel just called Americans in Anime. I believe the full title was Americans in Anime F. Yeah. Yeah. To really and, sort uh, of convey what you were getting. <laughs> we should do that panel again. It was fun. If we can find some more material. New, more contemporary examples of Americans in Anime from like the last two years or so. 
pretty much everything we got reflected the fact that every American in Japan is either seven or eight feet tall and blonde and blue-eyed or black. Mm -hmm. That is, those are the only Americans that exist in America at all. John Sleepyestes uh, is progressive because he's... Puerto Rican? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it is rare that you'll ever see like an Italian-American or anything. It is blonde, blue-eyed or black. Right. Also very, and also, you know, very out there to grab the Japanese women, like in Otoko Juku. Yeah. Which, yes, which they, might that, be that's one of why most... the immigration policy is so strict, because <laughs> they don't want the foreigners taking away their women, which is what will happen, because that's the only way that immigration could possibly have a positive effect on the birth rate. And if you're an American woman in manga or anime, you're probably wearing a red, white, and blue bikini. And have triple D, double D cup breasts. Thank oh, goodness. <laughs> I mean... Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true. I mean, every American woman that we know... I mean, Clarissa, how many American bikinis do you have? Half a dozen, at uh, least. Yeah. I mean, really. So. You can never have too many. <laughs> anyway, I find the portrayals quite funny. I guess most people should probably be offended. But then again, I very rarely see Europeans portrayed in anime outside of, like, Rosa Versailles right. and... Things like that. Well, so. that's the beauty of living in a first world like superpower is we yeah. don't have to be offended. No, that's because whatever and, we're still do whatever you want. Yeah. Don't change anything. Right. I did find but, it funny that there was a testimonial like I didn't go to soccer con again. And then, you know, because <laughs> their their panel policy is just awful. This is where you have to show ID to be able to curse. And so somebody actually did like a sort of analog to our Americans and anime panel. And then when they got to the Black Heaven thing, their panel was shut down. Oh, right. Re- yeah. Oh, because the character says, says fuck a lot. Yeah. Or like, I- say hi to my friends in Jersey, asshole, or whatever it was. The, the and the panel line. was shut down for that? Yeah, mm-hmm. shut down because of, uh, and also because you weren't allowed to, like, I think they had, like, the hot dog thing and Abinobashi or whatever it was, and maybe, yeah, like, yeah. the Yakitate Japan stuff. But the thing that just fascinates me, I think it was Yakitate Japan that was the last straw, and it was over the one girl in her outfit attire etc but it's like you got a panel shut down for being too risque from a shonen title a contemporary oh, a title not even like a going back old times when that was like way beyond when the violence pale. jack was there yeah, no no, no we're like talking that, yeah. like modern era current formula style and they got shut down over that it's like there's not a thing i could do over that convention man nobody not will really. ever be able to do panels about that new prison school prison high <laughs> yes no right, prison school which is going to be incredibly popular and, oh, and yeah. very, very hated. Anyway. Locally hated on social media. You go Locally to Crunchyroll hated. and it's like right up there near the top is what I can Pretty much like Crossange. Everyone hates Crossange. Going by testimonials of like air quotes, think pieces and long form blogging and stuff like that. But sales were so high, not just views, sales yes. were so high that there's probably going to be a second season. Ugh. This is why it is very funny to see like... The discussion in the Anna Twitter Ruddy and the analog to what people are actually watching. It is incredibly different. The moral of the story right. is you have to read YouTube comments, right, Gerald? That's <laughs> oh, where God. the truth is, is the YouTube comments section. Oh, well, anyway, Anders has a second question, actually. Here's the second less interesting, but nevertheless a valid question. To what extent is anime a self-defeating fandom? I would consider myself a huge anime fan, but don't often bring it up with people who aren't, because I'm embarrassed to admit it. I feel the fandom presents extremely poorly with such turnoffs as lowly porn, overzealous cosplayers, and unpleasant communities, to name a few. These are things I don't want my acquaintances and even some of my closer friends to associate with me. Just the other day, I was in the bank, and a 
This is awesome. And a guy in Naruto cosplay walked in making a total spectacle of himself. For the record, Anders lives in Florida. Oh, shit. Was it Naruto boy, do you think? Oh, I... Oh, I I, I really want to believe this. Contextualize to the people who Naruto boy is. So a friend of ours, just as a quick aside, a friend of ours teaches at a very large university in the area. There's a student that she just lovingly calls Naruto boy, who is this guy who... Has nothing else to talk about or to say except about Naruto. That's all he brings up. That all he screams about. He comes to like the study sessions and this all he is does is college. talk about Naruto. It's not like elementary school. Yeah. Or... Yep. He, I guess he failed out of his class. Yeah. And Just I don't like know if the he's real even there Naruto. Anymore. Just well, when I, I took Japanese at UCF, we had some people like that. Not really that obnoxious, but y- you get like the weebs who usually drop out pretty early on because then they realize Japanese is hard. It's not an easy language to learn, and if you're just there so you can watch cartoons, it's a lot of work for just that. Anyway, he goes on. For added context, no convention was taking place anywhere near there. I heard him say to the bank teller that he and his friends do this to, quote-unquote, mess with people. After he left, I remember overhearing the conversation of some high school kids who made him the subject of their jokes. I know every fandom has its loons, obviously, but I just feel anime fans managed to take it up one notch more i don't know any cool normal people who like anime which isn't to say they don't exist too we're cool look anyway. john cena my mom is apparently says I'm a cool. huge fan of japanimation <laughs> and his favorite show is fist of the north star so you should feel better there you go that's that's, uh, that's true he said so himself yes uh he goes on unfortunately Aside from the older fans like you guys, I feel like the fandom fits its stereotypes just a little too well. Maybe if more anime fans were less rabid and more outgoing, anime would be a more broadly accepted thing. It doesn't help that true anime fans are so cruel on the subject of things like Naruto and Attack on Titan. I often see these shows and their fandoms degraded, while I'd certainly be last in line to go to bat for either of them. I realize they're gateway anime. All my friends know what Naruto is and Attack on Titan, but they don't know who Naoki Urasawa's monster is. Should they watch Monster? Yes, obviously, it's the best. Will they ever get to it if they don't start somewhere? No. The anime fandom is in desperate need of civility, and while you maybe jokingly say otherwise, I feel you guys are a bastion of that and a constant reminder of why I love anime. Hopefully your good traits will rub off on some of the fans out there, but is that ever going to happen? Really? I feel like... It should have happened already. Can anime evolve or is it doomed to be a caricature of itself forever? Anyway, thanks for the great show. If my shitty podcast is ever one-eighth as good as yours, I die a happy man. Anders. It's fascinating to me that one of the most viewed college humor videos within the last week or so, this has over a million views, is The Adventures of Butthurt Anime Fan. Which was a thing I showed at the convention and a lot of people had not seen it. It was the last thing I showed and I think... It is the perfect, note-perfect distillation of the state of what anime fans are like in 2015 and how non-anime fans perceive them to be. It's obviously written by someone who knows exactly what the score is, and it is why everyone is hated. That's basically, it's the perfect storm of the shows that they choose to defend and put up and present along with the conduct that they do, not just within each other, but to people who just want a simple bit of advice or recommendation. If Gunbuster 
in the 80s was like the perfect distillation of what anime itself was like in the 80s. Platonic ideal. This video, this YouTube video is the platonic ideal of what anime fandom in the United States is like right now. It's very uncomfortable for some people to watch because they're like, shit, this is something that is exactly what I would say. Or this is I know some guy who would do exactly that. You know, mm -hmm. it's just it's great. And if you look at, again, the source of truth, the YouTube comments, a lot of it is like, yeah, fuck those anime fans. I know these people just like this. And well, yeah. it's true, because when you look at all these big dust ups on social media, it's true. A lot of the really toxic people who are going to flood people and harass people have that anime avatar. And there's a reason behind that. And so, well, thankfully, the only thing that we've got that's worse than us is gamers. gamers. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, the, gamers the, thing are... the, the thing that's worse, though, is that <laughs> Venn diagram intersection, because as we know, yeah. very few people who play anime do not also play games. Mm -hmm. True that it's very, very difficult to sort of evangelize anime as a fan thing that you're into without being a crazy person, because the mm -hmm. people everybody see talking up anime are particularly crazy people to an extent that exceeds other fandoms. Right. Well, and I think noting that there's that overlap between like the obnoxious people who are gamers and the obnoxious people who are anime fans. And I've seen it happen too in other fandoms. And I think a lot of what it is, is to be perfectly honest, you have that core nerd demographic that just still can't let go that they were really made fun of in high school. And I say this as somebody who was really made fun of and had like no friends in school. So, um, <laughs> but the person who like can't move past that and has this image of themselves as like this oppressed minority, the fact of the matter is then what they do is they go on the internet and then they make themselves feel better and more powerful by being an asshole to other people. Yeah, and when you look at the big sites that are like the top hubs for like bad internet behavior, they're invariably tied to anime fandom in some way. 4chan. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's way bigger than anime at this point, but it's primarily thought of as where the anime people are. I mean, a lot of these, an anime, yeah, and a lot an of like the harassment course, so. and abuse campaigns, et cetera, are on maybe not 4chan anymore, but some sort of derivative spinoff of it. Or well, thankfully, Reddit is not anime, you know, associated at all. It's it's got its so. anime contingency, but it's not the first thing you think of. But maybe it should be. I don't know. But it's just a lot of people are generally like when you think of like visible anime fan, they are those kinds of people, and so that's a very difficult thing. And I don't know if it's a self-defeating fandom. It's just one of those things where I'm not sure how to course correct on it because it's always been true that anime fans are younger mm. than other fan groups. But it's simultaneously true that nowadays people are into other stuff along with anime. I'm kind of wondering, because I know we've talked before about like conventions and anime cons and, you know, not having non-anime stuff and about like the split of anime away from, because anime used to be like a little tiny ghetto within the science fiction conventions. And at Comic-Con it still is. So I totally understand why it's split off, but I wonder if the splitting off kind of the segregation of anime and Japanese culture interests over into its own thing, even if people bring other nerd stuff into it. Do you think that that contributes to the lack of visibility or the idea that like, oh, the anime people are those other weirdos? I think it's a seed 
and that's part of it, but I think it's top down, not bottom up uh, in the sense yeah. that the mono geek culture as we know it is largely driven by U.S. corporate interests, the large conglomerations, you know, Time Warner owns mm. this and this and this and Disney owns not just Marvel, but Star Wars and Disney right. and all. And so that yeah. also like ABC and affiliated websites. And, and so when you start looking at sites like Bleeding Cool or, you know, mm. IGN and all this kind of stuff, you'll see like there's an intersectionality there. And so it's in their best interest when they have their exclusive first look coverage to focus on the stuff that they own right. and, and, and it's not, not making, in there. Yeah. We'll see if Otakon will accept my panel, but I'm doing kind of a light version of that. It's interesting when you see like how anime is depicted in like American media. There's kind of two very broad strokes of it. And one is as completely indifferent towards it. Like and we one don't is get as stuff. I wouldn't say we don't get it. It's just more like, like there, we have nothing to say. We have nothing to say about it. Mm -hmm. And then the other broad stroke is, this is weird, and it breeds weird people. And uh, also, we don't know what to think of it, but we don't own any of it, and we can't make any money off of it. So therefore, it's in our best interest to just make it as weird and off-putting as possible. It's a safe target. Like, you can't really see too many instances of jokes about how Aquaman sucks from things that are owned by Time Warner. Like, other things can tee off as need be, but can... Go to bat on anime and take whatever shots you want. Mm. And that's what we see. And so that seeds like a mentality. And then after a point, you don't need to actively do anything anymore. Like the people will just do that on their own and think that of their own accord. It's not right. like there's a conspiracy. There's no like cabal of people saying, let's get anime guys. But <laughs> it's, you know, once you have that mindset in place, you can reinforce it. And mm -hmm. so it's always fascinating when I look at like these big geek coverage sites, games, comics, movies, cosplay, and more. It's never anime. Mm. They've managed to take cosplay, which is sort of our word, and make it like the general catch-all term for all costuming. While never referring while back never to, referring back to what it came anime from, conventions or... and anime fandom. So mm. it's an interesting co-branding, but it's just one of those things where that's what makes it hard for anime to be seen, and so the only time you see anime is these crazy people. Right. Well, and as we've also discussed before, Japan is primarily making entertainment for their own people, right? They're not focusing on making entertainment to appeal to Americans in general, whereas most of the big popular nerd and geek stuff is either American or British, which is close enough, right? The yeah. How many of them are into a lot of foreign stuff, right? You know, you don't see that much of any foreign material. You see, like, some at least acknowledgement or, you know, respect for, say, French or Italian stuff, but it's usually mm -hmm. just like a one-off in passing. This exists and it's respected as opposed to, like, wow, Tintin sure is fucked up, guys, right? You don't usually see that aspect of it in the media but i did find it interesting like a week or so ago they did do an interview with the current people who are in charge of under the dog which was like this kickstarter project that was pitched like a otakon last year had some internal staff shakeups, and so i guess right now what they're trying to do is reassure people that this thing isn't going to be bad except right now people are still very unsure about that and one of the things that they pointed out was that this sort of project that we're making is something that people who are inclined to buy Blu-rays typically and historically would not purchase. 
And it's an interview on Anime News Network. And they also did a panel at SoccerCon, which has a transcript where it's like there's this weird dichotomy of what does mainstream appeal even mean? Because to us, it means what would the most people watch? But when things are produced and your goal is to get people to buy your video, it's a very different audience that will buy the media. And so when they talk about like, okay, well, currently customers buy Moe titles and that's why the market is so focused on that because projects are launched by pitching concepts designed to sell your DVD and Blu-ray package. What's currently the mainstream in Japan is very different from what Under the Dog is, but globally speaking, something like Under the Dog would be mainstream. We just have no proof that it is because no one really goes and buys a thing. Well, let's be careful as well. Like when we say mainstream, they just mean like well, people watch mean it. Mainstream anime fans, because general public in Japan watches Sazai San and One yeah, Piece. Yeah, they just don't buy. Um, right, but that's saying. why he's talking about the people who are buying the home video purchases. Right. Yeah, the home video purchases are like a show can be purchased by like. 300 people right and that's it right and so. so you do see a lot of merchandising for those other mainstream things your shonen jump titles and it's tough i just want to let everybody out there know just because you're an anime fan doesn't mean you have to defend everything that anime makes yeah i would say when most people throw like anime sucks really what they mean is this specific type of anime sucks that is very visible and easy to spot i talked to some people who don't know about anime and they'll say, like, I heard about this thing. And I'll say, yeah, that's a terrible show. That is a terrible show. I don't watch it. I have nothing. I am not associated with it. It's not my thing. So they'll throw out, like, oh, I saw Sword Art Online was playing. And do you know about this show? And I say, no, I've heard it's terrible or it goes terrible. And I don't watch that show and I don't associate with that. And then they say, well, what should I watch? I don't know, you know, what to get into. And then I'll say, like, well, Redline, you can watch for free online. And it's a really cool movie. And try something like that. Uh, you do not have to defend everything that anime does or is. And you shouldn't. Because most of it is bad. Just like everything, most of it is bad. And try to, you know, turn it down a little bit. The thing is, I think that the people who are listening to this show are probably not those obnoxious sort of fans. Yeah, I think if you're already listened to an hour or whatever that we talked to answering this email, you're probably already on board with what we're saying. So it's one of those things where the most visible thing may not be for the age demographic that the mono geek culture is now, which is actually largely adults, like people in their older teens to 20s and up are kind right. of like the geek culture as we define it today, because they're the ones who have the consumerist power. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you'll see folks levy criticism against anime and manga because their point of reference is Shonen Jump or shoujo titles for that age audience. And I think really it's just one of those cases where it's just out of their age demographic. The reason that they think it's simplistic or whatever is because you're referring to something that's written for an audience ostensibly like 12 year olds, 14, and you need something for an older age group. It's just, there aren't visible high profile Jose and Seinen work compared to your Naruto and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon sorts of titles. Mm -hmm. And there won't be because those titles are owned by companies that aren't owned by Viacom or any of those other things. Like when people talk about big selling comic books, a comic book that sells, you know, 40,000, 60,000 copies. Yeah, that's like a huge know. story that The Walking Dead sold like 60,000 trade paperback for the latest volume. Like was that that was worldwide, right? Something uh, like wh that? Whatever it is, it just and, it pales yeah, in it comparison. Was, was, so like, like if One Piece comes manga. out, and it sells yeah. 12 million copies for volume 68. That's not news. That's like, no, oh, that's, that's, nice. that's something that people should know about, but they don't because who owns One Piece? 
One Piece is owned by what, Viz? Is Shueisha, it? yeah. Mm-hmm. Shueisha, Shueisha owns Viz. And Viz is a small company, and Viacom doesn't own them, Disney doesn't own them, they have no interest in pushing that. So it's very interesting when you kind of delve a little bit deeper into this. We are kind of this weird offshoot because we're not watching like American or British stuff. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, every once in a while when there's certain like crossover options, either people don't really (laughs) think of them as anime specifically or the companies, for whatever reason, don't really take advantage of it. Like I'm thinking about things like the supernatural anime or like I think there was a, a manga for Sherlock. The supernatural anime amazes me. That was 26 episodes. Some of it was even dubbed by the people who did the show. And I wouldn't know it exists Mm -hmm. unless you had watched it and done a review on it. Yeah. What the hell? And I mean, Warner Brothers owns it. That makes no sense to me. Like, why would they do that? Right. And yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure there's a a Sherlock manga. There is. It's it's an adaptation of the BBC show in, in manga format. Never released here. Yeah. It seems like a great missed opportunity. One thing I will say, and I said, like, when when this happened, I was, like, very critical of Kodansha, and the Kodansha English reps were, like, not very happy with me on Twitter or whatever. <laughs> but it's worth bringing up again because yesterday, as we record this, was free comic book day in the United States. This is a thing where, for whatever mysterious reason, the richest companies in the world make local comic book stores pay to give away, quote, free comics. They can't just give people free comics. But one of the free comics that they gave away was advertising the big Marvel Comics event of the year, which is uh, they're bringing back Secret Wars, this big culmination of years of setting up that they've been doing. So they gave away Secret Wars Zero as a free comic book day to everybody. What was interesting to me was, if you get that book, the second half of it is actually the Attack on Titan crossover with Marvel. That's included in there, along with ads for Kodansha's manga, Go buy these volumes of Attack on Titan, etc. There are ads for it. Yeah, and I saw some other Attack on Titan stuff in the the store too. Yeah, and there was a yeah, separate was one Kodansha, of the like mm-hmm. Attack on Titan thing as yeah. well. But let's say you had no interest in that crummy manga stuff, and so you don't pick up that Attack on Titan, but you do pick up Secret Wars. You're gonna get the crossover bit, and yet it's only promoted by Marvel and like minimal promotion by Kodansha. And so when I saw like, okay, finally, there's at least ads for the Kodansha manga here. That's like the right move. But nobody's talking it up. It's so weird, at least on the manga side. And it seems like everything, when you look at the credits of how that crossover came to be, it seems like it was entirely just by virtue of the fact that Marvel has some editors who know Japan and know manga very, very well. C.B. Sabulski and some of those other people. And they said, okay, let's put this thing together because they realize an opportunity here but there seems to be like they did it entirely through kodansha japan (laughs) it's weird i don't know how to explain it but it's the right kind of move it's the kind of place to put something in there of course it's drawn exponentially better than the actual attack on titan (laughs) manga oh yeah so maybe when you pick up that manga and you're like whoa this looks nowhere near as cool (laughs) as what they got in that comic but i would like to see some more things like that some sort of high-powered cross promotion or at least promotion it's just one of those things where Hey, uh, at least they had a comic out there. They had JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and Yu-Gi-Oh, I guess. What a combination to put as two things in the free comic book day giveaway. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and Yu-Gi-Oh. I saw they had a Pokemon comic as well, but Pokemon is almost like... It makes sense to combine Pokemon with (laughs) Yu-Gi-Oh. But JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, it was Phantom Blood specifically with Mm. (laughs) Yu-Gi-Oh. is a fascinating uh... combination of things. Right. Anyway, it it is a... 
very interesting discussion. It's one that the best way you can do is kind of lead by example. Try to be the good anime fan, the one that people are comfortable with asking you things. As opposed to the, not all anime fans! <laughs> yeah, don't be that. Don't defend everything that anime does. Try to be a good guy that, you know, guides them to good shows. Right. Things like yeah, that. Don't be that person who really tries to prove how cool and smart they are on the internet by repeatedly yelling about how much they hate something that's popular or that people like. Because the only thing more obnoxious than like the really loud, annoying fans of something shitty are the people who spend all of their time trying to prove how much better they are <laughs> than those annoying fans. So. Messy Now we're going to review a series that ran at the end of last year and only recently finished up called Shirobako. The title translates literally to white box, and it's a reference to a term used in anime production, because that is exactly what the series is about. It's about people making anime. White box refers to the white cases that they used to use for VHS tapes when they brought them to the, uh, the studios and the production staff members. They don't use those anymore, but the term still sticks around. The story follows five best friends who were in an animation club at their high school, fell in love with animation, and wanted to go through and become parts of the anime industry. And their dream is at some point to work together to make their own anime and make something really good. So the main character is Miyamori Aoi. She's a production assistant. She gets a job at a company called Musashino Animation. Her friend, Emma Yasuhara, gets a job as an animator at the same company. Their friend, Shizuka Sasaki, or Zuka-chan, as they generally call her, wants to become a voice actress, and she is working with a group called Akaoni Productions and is trying really hard. She works mostly as a waitress and is going to auditions trying to breakthrough as a voice actress. Their other friend, Todo Misa, is a 3D computer graphics artist, and she ends up working at a graphics studio called Super Media Creations. And then Imai Midori, who wants to be a scriptwriter. So they're all ladies who yeah. are all yes. out of college or so, mm -hmm. uh, all entering different facets of the anime industry. Yes, at a few different companies. And so eventually they want to make something together, but for right now they're trying to get their foot in the door and become full-fledged parts of the industry. The series really goes through mostly focusing on Musashino Animation, which is the company that Miyamori, Emma, and Yasuhara work for. But, of course, it does also follow up with the other members of the group as well. We see Zuka-chan going to auditions. We see, you know, what's going on with Toto at the 3D animation company. Imai actually does end up helping out at Musashino and does actually end up working on some stuff. She uh, is able to start doing some, like, supporting research for their writers. But it's mostly on Miyamori and the other folks at Musashino Animation, and it follows their production of two different anime series. The first one is a series called Exodus, which is a cute 
girl show about idols, but it's also kind of hilariously weird. Crazy stuff happens. And then after that, an adaptation of a novel series, The Third Girl's Aerial Squad. So all these things, just for the record, are fictional studios, fictional shows being made that are suspiciously similar to real life things. (laughs) Yeah, the show is really good. And it's really good entirely on its own merits. Like all of the characters are really interesting. And anime production, any kind of large group endeavor in a professional setting is always a challenge, right? If you've ever worked in any kind of big creative endeavor, there's a lot of moving parts. And everybody has to kind of keep on track with their own things. If one thing is late, it can screw up everything else. So there's always a lot of tension happening. And anime production is maybe even sometimes more susceptible to all of this because you're dealing with a creative enterprise, right? And so sometimes you have like artists that are having trouble and aren't getting their stuff done. If you've ever read interviews with like manga artists or anything like that, you've probably heard similar stories about editors camped out outside the artist's door or, you know, dragging them into the office to finish their stuff up. And so there's definitely some of that. But if you are somebody who has spent a lot of time watching animation from Japan, then yeah, a lot of the characters in this show and maybe not the shows that Musashino Productions works on but some of the other shows that they talk about are references to actual people working in the industry and actual shows that have been created. Mm. So for example the director they're working with is a guy named Seichi Kinoshita and in appearance and everything he's based on the director Seiji Mizushima. We'll probably put up a link to some photos that people have compiled of the characters in the show side by side with the real people that they're based on. The first one that I recognized, the head of Musani or Musashino Anime Productions, Masahiro Marukawa, who is, you know, very obviously Masao Mariyama, who was one of the founders of Madhouse and who is currently running his own studio called Mappa. Oh, totally. And I have to ask him next time we get to see him if he is as good a cook in real life as they make him out to be in that show. Yeah, in the show, he's always cooking stuff for the staff to eat. That's all we ever really see him doing is yeah. like cooking and then occasionally providing advice to people. So I am curious. Like his base but he job- was the first one that I, I really recognized because I know names of a lot of people in production, but I don't always know what they look like. But having you know seen Mariyama in person at Otakon, him I recognized right off the bat. Oh, totally, yeah. And actually, one of the things that's kind of funny is that the director of Shirobako is is uh, Sutomu Mizushima. You've probably seen other stuff that he's worked on. He's worked on some fairly popular series. He worked on the second series of Genshiken. He worked on Okiku Furikabute or Big Windup, uh, both seasons of that. It was a baseball show, so if you're one of the like five people who bought the first season of that when it came out, he worked on a couple of adaptations of Clamp stuff. He worked on Holic, and I think Blood Sea was another Clamp thing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he's also worked on, if you've ever seen Squid Girl, which was a pretty popular comedy show, and maybe a lesser known one called Yandemasio Azazel-san, which is pretty funny. He also worked on that. Also, some people may be familiar with witchcraft works. He also worked on that. And what's funny is that he put himself into the show, but not necessarily in the way that you would expect by making himself like some super awesome person. Uh, he actually put himself in as a character named Takanashi Taro, who is the most useless <laughs> member of the production 
staff. This poor guy, I would say poor, but he's just like... Uh, that, char- <laughs> that character in the show never seems to quite grasp how dire a situation is. It's always amazing that he uh, keeps his job somehow. Yeah. Right, yeah. Like, you would think that the first day or the first week, anything that he would have done in the show would have been just like, okay, that's it, just take a walk. And that would have been done. <laughs> Yeah, I know. There were a few times that actually there were a few times watching this that I was like, how do any of these people still have their job? Yeah, it's interesting because we have definitely seen anime that has portrayed the anime production process before. I just did a panel on it. Right. It's been a subject of anime for at least 20, 25 years. Right. Like, I think we reviewed animation runner Kuromi. Yeah. But this is the first time that we've seen an entire 26-episode show dedicated to it. Right. And what's interesting is the show can get really heady at times with how technical it can get. They all have these conversations. And again, I don't work in anime, animation. None of us work in animation at a professional level. But some of these conversations are like almost Gundam level, just like <laughs> complex in, you know, how they talk about some of the animation process. Right. Because in any industry, there's a lot of specific terms that they use to refer to things. In some cases, it's technical terminology. In some cases, it's shorthand. And usually they try to explain some of that stuff. One of the things they use is that Miyamori has a couple of toys that she owns. One of them is like kind of a goth loli doll and another one is a a teddy bear. And they use these two characters and animate them as being sort of, I don't know, in some cases it's like they're sort of giving voice to the things that Miyamori is thinking about, but in some cases they're just sort of off talking to each other about separate things. So they kind of explain a lot of the stuff that's going on maybe a little bit similar to like the function of the Greek chorus I suppose Mm. or in some cases almost like the little angel and devil characters that people have on their shoulders because sometimes they'll talk like to Miyamori and so they'll have like things sometimes where they'll explain like oh well this is what this person does in the production process and oh, when they say that it's going to this part of the production, this is what they do. Like, this is when they check to make sure that the timing matches up with the clips put together and the audio or whatnot. There is a lot of technical terminology. It can be a little uh, overwhelming at times. Overall, I don't want to say that they try to sugarcoat the experience of working in animation. They don't talk necessarily about things like the low pay but you know they do obviously portray that this is a very difficult thing you know producing animation especially on a very tight television schedule is really hard it takes a lot of people they don't have a lot of time I don't envy the production staff. Every single portrayal we've ever seen of the creation of anime has always emphasized this. It seems like a miracle that any anime is made ever. (laughs) Right? Because everything's late and they're always like scrambling around, you know, trying to get replacements because some animator doesn't get all of their cuts done or somebody walks out. Then they're at the last minute calling everybody they know, begging to see if somebody else can step in and help them out. From all the stories that we've read, like just unrelated to any anime production, it seems like Mm -hmm. this is not far off from reality, which is immensely frustrating for me just because like these are professionals. And I guess when you're in a creative industry, you deal with people who are, how do I put the term, like delicate, maybe? Flakes. Uh, Yeah. Just like, oh, my piece got cut or we're not doing that. That's it. This is it. I'm a offended i'm out and not like okay that's fine we need to get this fucking thing done because we all need to get paid Um, right yeah i mean i think a creative industry is always a little bit difficult yeah 
The thing with all the the main characters in Shirobako is that the reason that they're doing this is because they really, really love it. Like, they're passionate about it. And so when you're passionate about something, it can be harder to cut corners because you want it to be the best that you can manage. And, you know, also if it's, like, really personal, which creative endeavors often are, this is always the thing, right? Like, with writers, like, you have to learn to be able to take criticism Mm -hmm. and to cut things out that maybe you don't initially want to. And it is hard. You have to learn to do it, but it is difficult. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's crazy. I wonder like if some of these kinds of like temper tantrums almost go on. Like I know you talked about this show in another panel just recently that you ran about uh, animators and anime Mm. where you use this part where um, they're having a problem getting the director to finish his storyboards. They have the entire last episode basically needs to be story storyboarded and they're in panic mode and literally the producer lures the director into a dark closet with promises of fried chicken and then locks him in a cell yeah locks him in literally a jail cell it's the animation studio jail cell that is built and is part of the studio for this exact function (laughs) yeah literally like okay you don't get to come out of this cell until you finish your storyboards and i wonder if anything that extreme has ever actually happened. It feels happened? like this would have been the one where art did imitate life because I do know that famously <laughs> the final episode or so of this show didn't make it, like didn't show, right? Right. And must have been because the actual crisis being depicted in the series must have come to pass. <laughs> Uh, We've heard, I guess, somewhat similar stories about the manga industry, the story that Mm -hmm. I've heard so much, because manga apparently is just as bad, if not worse, because you're dealing with many, many fewer people. Sometimes, on especially the weekly stuff, a much tighter schedule. The stories I've heard was they would pull the manga author into the offices, or the editor would go to that person's house and sit there and circle around their desk until they had everything completed. Like the triumphant conclusion of Blue Blazes of, um, it's three hours to the deadline. I'm going to now take a nap for two hours even though i've just been asleep (laughs) the entire time and then i will finish it in the final one hour because i am a manga artist right yeah and those are real stories we've heard so that is not terribly far off from the stuff that we see here which again it's a miracle that any anime is made yeah you know it's a little hard to tell i mean obviously the mechanics of the production process and clearly they are basing these characters off of real people i mean even a lot of the voice actresses that work on the shows that they're making are based off of real people. You know, the references to Tanaka Rie, mm. Kaino Ai, and also like one of the side-by-signs I found is a picture of the B-Studio from Studio TNT, which looks almost exactly like one of the rooms that they're working in in the show. But yeah, I mean, I wonder about the people. Like, the president of Bones is one of the guys that's portrayed in here, Masahiko Minami. And in the show, he's basically always depicted as this sort of drunk and so I wonder. Well, I know they had to get permission from like Seiji Mizushima of like, hey, can we dramatize this fuck up from back when we were working for you? And he was like, yeah, sure, do it. <laughs> right. Yeah, either these portrayals are incredibly accurate or it's entirely the opposite as like an inside joke. And I want to believe that they're just extremely accurate because I'm sure that the director would portray himself as one of the worst characters in the whole show. Um, <laughs> yeah, which I guess is what he was like when he first started. But uh, yeah. apparently he seems to have come a long way <laughs> since then. It's crazy. Like, there's always so much stuff happening in this show. At the same time, it's at least refreshing, like, that there's maybe a couple of people 
uh, one of my favorite characters, uh, Yano, is one of the production people at Musashino Animation. And there's a part where she kind of talks about how she just sort of ended up working in animation. But for the most part, most of the characters in here are people that, you know, are really, really passionate about it, which I suppose you kind of have to be, especially given how low a lot of these positions are paid. Mm -hmm. There's something really compelling about that, right? About like watching a group of people do something and work for something and fight for something that they're really passionate about. To see this group of friends, all of them working so hard and making progress towards getting what they want. And of course, you know, they've still got a ways to go. What's interesting to me, we've seen anime fans depicted in anime so Mm -hmm. many times. So like, it's almost become boring now to see the otaku in an anime show. That portrayal, with very few exceptions, is an extremely superficial portrayal. I'm not going to say it's necessarily inaccurate, but it's a very much like, I like everything on the surface of anime in general. I just like the look of it. I want the merchandise. And my big contribution to the world is being able to talk about this stuff or buy it. And it's very interesting because anime is not an industry. I mean, you could argue one way or the other, but it's not really an industry where you can quote unquote make it. It's an industry that you go into because you really want to produce something that you really love and possibly the best that you will ever do in your life is being able to direct the show, not get paid a whole lot more, and have a whole lot more responsibility and a whole lot more shit to deal with. Right. I mean, it's not like Hollywood where you're going to become world famous. And yeah, the most famous that you'll ever become is a couple of maniacs will know your name in the anime industry Mm -hmm. or the anime fandom, I should say. So it is interesting to see because yes these people are fans but they are not the otaku that we're kind of used to seeing in anime. And I think what's interesting about that is just the fact that they are and this is also sort of like a, a change of pace they're older than your typical anime lead characters it's kind of a right. thing I mean, these are all adults because they're professionals yeah, and it's sort of a thing where you're so used to anime high school at this point that the notion of a show where Pretty much everybody is, like you said, adults who are like professionals in the workforce. They're going to think a little differently than your Chinibio light novel heroes or heroines that (laughs) seem to be the norm. So Mm -hmm. what interests me about this show in a lot of ways is that it caught on. It was one of those things where when it first started, this wasn't like a very heavily hyped up show anticipation wise no right i don't think they really expected it to do super it well gradually caught on and got big right. over time yeah and the sales have been really good like they weren't high at first but the sales have actually progressively increased which is not something you typically see historically the best-selling volume of something when you put something out on video is the first one and then it gradually decreases after that but this was mm-hmm. the opposite yeah it's that kind of sleeper hit and yeah and that's that's one of the things that is frustrating a lot about media. And I don't know if this is the same case in Japan, but I know here in the US with television and movies, companies don't seem to generally have the patience to have something like that. Everything is expected to be immediately hugely successful and popular. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't, then it's kind of considered a failure. Whereas if you look back at a lot of TV shows that now people think of as being huge classics that were hugely influential, you know, some of them 
weren't big at all when they first started. I mean, Star Trek got canceled initially. I think Seinfeld was the same way. Like, it took a while before Seinfeld really got popular. Yeah, like two seasons of that. Yeah. Something close to that. And now it's like if the first season isn't just massively successful, you're lucky if they'll bother renewing it. And I don't know if that trend is the same in Japan, but I wouldn't be too surprised. It certainly if it seems is. to be that way for manga. I mean, you keep hearing yeah. story after story, like, because I get the digital weekly shonen jump, one of the things that they do is they have what's called the jump start, or that they call it, mm-hmm. where like a brand new thing that just started in Japan, they're going to like simul pub the first two or three chapters worth. And so far, every single one of those that they've done, there's been like six at least, has been canceled very quickly or really? been forced to end very quickly. And a part of it is just because those popularity polls that people fill out, this thing isn't like an immediate thing that draws people in. And mm-hmm. even like their current new success is this thing called World Trigger. And that was very much on the brink of being canceled. But fortunately, by the 10th chapter, there was a bit of development that people were like, oh, okay, wow, this is cool. And now mm. it's like a, a thing that's stuck around. But 10 chapters, oh, that's like two and a half months of this thing isn't that great. Maybe we should cancel it. And a lot of the things right. didn't even make it to chapter 10. So, I wonder about that, like what shows and what anime get that right to do that. Um, well, remember yeah. the way that anime is produced is all infomercial, right? So yeah. it's all like, okay, yeah. we got it's our 13 done. episodes. Yeah. We'll pay you to put this on the TV and we'll hopefully make it up in merchandising and DVD sales or Blu-ray yeah. sales later. So it is a different model. Right. Uh, and so I'm really happy that Shirobako has been able to pick up in the way that it has. And I hope that maybe that opens the door for them to take a chance on other things. What do you think was the secret behind this one's success, so to speak, in the sense that it's not about young adults and it's not really a very fan service heavy show and it's not full of action and so on and so forth? What do you think made people discover it and latch on to it? I don't know. I can't obviously speak for everybody, but I would say there's something about that emotional connection that these people feel with their work and that they feel with the stuff that they are producing and that they want to produce that I think is just really magnetic. Seeing some of like the attention to detail and how important, even for like the artists that are just doing the backgrounds, how much they care about it and put work into it maybe that's the idealized fiction of it that there's not like a whole like murk you know nose to the grindstone sort of mentality about what they're doing even if they're making something that's like of questionable uh quality (laughs) especially like some of the things i think another part is just and this is a little misleading because i've seen like some professionals kind of point this out is just there is a large number of people who are taking this show as like the gospel as mm-hmm. like this is the real deal finally this is like i watched shirabako and now i know true inner workings of how shit gets made how do we get the sausage oh right like that sort of gnostic appeal of like now you're in on the secrets mm-hmm. yeah yeah because there are some bits in this where like okay there's a questionable casting decision or whatever and what drove mm-hmm. that and it's like okay some people kind of think like oh this is some inside baseball sort of stuff that I'm getting here and even there it's one of those things where it's showing a little more behind the curtain but it's still not really the real thing because it's got to be punched up to be interesting 
Mm. This may be a thing to be wary of when we're looking at people do panels and presentations is a lot of people will say like, well, this is how it went down in Shirabako as like the kind of baseline for what it must be. Yeah. For example, one of the things is you don't see the characters commenting too much on like the show that they're making other than the production process behind it. Mm. People don't say like, well, we're making this really garbage show and, you know, I have to come to work every day and make this terrible like Moe whatever show. And I mean, maybe they genuinely like it or not. But that doesn't really get addressed. I'm sure there's Mm. plenty of times when there are people who are just hating their lives. Like, I always wondered about that. There's an older animator that is at the studio who uh, I believe is based on... uh Yasushi Mori, Mori, yeah. one of the trainers of Miyazaki and, you know, goes back into the, like the mm-hmm. 60s. They comment that he can't really work on, you know, Moe anime. His speciality is animals. I always wonder, like, how is he enjoying his day to day life working on these shows that he has no right, no attachment well, to? They don't go into that in too much depth, but there actually is an episode because for most of the show, he's kind of sitting off in the corner yeah. working on something different from the rest of what the rest of the people are working on. But there actually is an episode and I actually I really like that episode mm-hmm. like it's it's kind of baldly manipulatively sentimental but i i fall for it anyway where they get his help to work on some animation involving animals because they have some stuff with horses yeah that they need to work on this sounds and... like a yoshiaki kawajiri anecdote already <laughs> Right. So there's this whole thing where at first he's like, well, I don't know that I can be useful because I'm from this totally different world. Like, I I don't think I can draw the kinds of things that you guys are making. And there's a sense that you feel like he feels kind of left behind. And so, like, it's really great for him that he's able to, like, work on this and contribute to it. Because they do they do talk about that. Yeah. Like, can he draw Moe anime? <laughs> like, and actually, that's also great because the, uh, the main character, Miyamori, a lot of them at different points talk about what is it that got you into this? Like, what show was it that you saw that you were like, oh my god, like, this is what I have to make? And what I love is that for Miyamori, it's not this default otaku thing the show that miyamori loves the thing that made her want to work in animation is this show called andes chucky which is a a reference to a real kids show from i think the 70s called rocky chuck which um, actually yasuji mori worked on and in the show miyamori finds out that sugie the old guy at the studio worked on andes chucky so there's this connection this stuff that was worked on before and like the way it's inspired these other people so there's some of what you get in some of these like fan things of that kind of love for it but it's not just mm-hmm. a love for like it's not like the Genshiken style like, yeah 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 maybe there's something too like Andy's Chucky isn't really the type of show you would expect to have called out as like well, what really got you into animation and some of the characters uh have more sort of orthodox responses I know there's one episode where they're talking about a show that's obviously meant to reference Space Runaway Ideon oh yeah Ideon <laughs> and so you know one of the other staff members is like that's like his big show that he's passionate about mm. But yeah, so maybe part of what works for Shirobako sort of is the fact that it's kind of different from a lot of the other stuff you see. Because like the closest I can really remember, and again, it's not a full length show, but years ago there was an OAV called Animation Runner Kuromi, which also Mm -hmm. had some similar plot lines as far as like, oh, these people aren't delivering their cuts. And oh, I became, I wanted to join the industry because I was a big fan of this show. And then, you know, one of the other people in the studio turns out they worked on that show. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's some things like that. And that too also had some analogs to real life people and scenarios. But 
that one never like got the chance to really like hit it big and a lot of people didn't really end up knowing about it even though it did get dubbed and released here and all that kind of stuff and got a sequel yeah and they made a second one too I guess people who did see it kind of just saw it on the basis of the track record of the guy who made it, who had made some pretty mm. popular, well-regarded things at the time, Akitaro Daiichi. But this one, again, the director of it is kind of an eclectic sort of guy. He's made like a bunch of weird things, none of which have been like hits that are defined by the style of the guy making it. Right. Just because you like Big Windup doesn't mean you like Mazazel-san or whatever. Yeah. Very different shows. Very different. I see this and I would like for people to look at it and say like, okay, well, this will let us take similar chances on other sorts of materials. But I wonder if the takeaway is going to be like, you know, this very sort of superficial. Well, this has a lot of cute girls eating donuts. So we got to get something like that in there again. I don't know like what the reaction will be. I know a lot of people were very almost elated that those last few episodes were delayed just because they didn't want it to end and to this day there is no second season announced for this and it seems like it's a no-brainer like all you're hearing us talk about is oh sleeper hit and caught on and got on Mm -hmm. with a bunch of people and it's popular and people seem to like it but i don't know if there is going to be any more it's a little bit soon and if it's a sleeper hit that would mean that the production process for stuff almost a year out is still on the pipeline. And so it would probably have to be like something where some time opens up for maybe the director or the staff or the writers or whatever. But you're right, we don't have any. And it is one of those things where it is obviously based on the subject material. It is originally created as anime. Like the manga is like obviously one of those tie-in manga that are usually never good. Maybe there's just a question of, well, we aren't used to writing shit, so we would have to come up with some new horror stories. But it is going to come out here in the U.S. I think Sentai Filmworks is going to put it out because I think the live stream of it was theirs, wasn't it? The live stream was Crunchyroll. It was on Crunchyroll? Okay, so yeah. Yeah, Sentai Filmworks are going to put it out here. Warner Brothers are one of the producers. Interesting. Hmm. I'd like more people to see this. It's hard for me to say, like, the characters are really great, but I don't know if there's enough material material in terms of horror stories to make another there are enough novelty horror stories like i kind of feel like there are plenty of horror stories but they're kind of all repetitions of the same it's all like oh they're they're late they're not on time we have to you know this this. we have to do this but this has to be done first and that is delayed or whatever and oh we have to do this based on you know i'm not sure how many ways that sort of changes i think they can i don't know if that really needs to be the focus like sure it's entertaining but honestly i mean for me i would just like to to see how these characters progress and if they end up making their own thing Mm. right do they ever get to remake the animation that they made for their high school club and make like the ultimate version of their seven lucky gods story Mm -hmm. or what kind of things do they get to work on right because like one of the things that went on was Toto, who works as the 3D animator. She has a a conflict where the production studio that she's working for, like, pretty much all they're letting her do is do CG animation of tires, because they're contracting out to a lot of, like, game studios for car games and things like that, and she's like, I don't want to just make tires. I want to do other things. So I think that there's also just in what kind of different things they might be able to work on. The very, yeah. so, at the very least. Shirabako season two, where they make conflagration officer. 
I mean, at the very least, if we don't get a season two, we have a very solid, extremely enjoyable what we have. But yeah, I would welcome a season two. And it would be interesting to see what they can come up with. And didn't they do like actual as an extra like episodes of like the thing they were working on or whatever? Yes. Because there was, I think, like they did, they did one for Exodus and for one each. for Aerial Squad. Mm-hmm. And that's when yeah. the joke is like the Genshin joke of, man, this thing sucks or whatever. But no, it's, uh, it's <laughs> well, not. Well, as long like, as we don't get a whole season yeah. of Exodus. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not like <laughs> Kujibiki unbalanced the series or anything like that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it is very interesting to see this done in a way that is not as superficial as we've seen it before. Um, and that's mm-hmm. kind of important to me. So yeah. it is a rough industry. It is something that every time I see this, I want to be involved in it less and less from a professional <laughs> right. perspective. Because it just seems like when you involve yourself in a job in the creative industry, that kind of becomes your life. There's never really times that you have to yourself. It's just all dedicated yeah. to that. And I know that becomes part of this. Like the girls will take days off and you don't really get a day off in the anime industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you get a time where you don't have to be in the office. That's for the whole day, let's say. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I love animation, and I, I would love to work on something like that. But at the same time, you know, I look at, like, what, you know, Miyamori is doing as production desk, and it's the same kind of stuff that in management in other places, right? You know, scheduling yes. and making sure everything's getting done and keeping track of everything. And it's like, yeah, I could probably do that, but I don't know if I could deal with that. <laughs> level of stress especially if i wasn't getting well yeah i mean also when you're dealing with creative people and i i have friends who have to work with this stuff and you get the very professional ones who you know whatever it is they don't care just get it done and then you get the ones like you Mm -hmm. said that you have to kind of babysit and that that makes it very difficult closest i ever got to this was i I helped out with like a comic anthology and you have people who can do the work fantastically and then you have people who just want to argue with you every step of the way and i like how this show showed both types yeah Um, very much so that became like a plot point early in the show there was a scene involving an explosion and mm-hmm. one animator who works traditionally in 2d animation had this beautiful scene done for it and the director saw like what you could do in cg and said oh we got to do it in cg just throw out all of this work and then that caused an enormous explosion got the studio and he was going to leave and everything and that was a very interesting part for me yeah just the personalities at least in this show are a part of it i don't know if that's the case in reality i would hope that in the reality they can put some of that aside and get the work done i especially love that particular plot line. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, things like that do sometimes happen. Because, you know, nobody likes to be told, like, oh, this stuff you put all this effort into is, we're just tossing it right, in the trash. Right, but everybody is told that uh, at some point. Many times, sure. in fact. <laughs> Anyone who's worked in a professional industry oh, yeah. has worked really hard on some project or something, and then the boss comes in and says, nope, we're not doing it. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Everybody has done that. If you haven't, you haven't worked very yeah. long. Yeah, there's always some kind of BS. Yeah. So I think, I mean, basically, Shirobako is awesome. And I highly recommend it to everybody. If you know enough about anime and about the people who work in the industry to get all of the references, it's pretty neat. But even if you don't, it's fine. The show just on its own as a a story about these people who are trying to do the job that they love is more than enough. So definitely watch it and hopefully we'll get another season or an OAV or something. But if not, at least we had this awesome season. I would be really surprised if we didn't get something else out of it. And yeah, I think everybody should check this out. It is very fun. The characters are great. It's nice to see anime fans that have greater ambition for their hobby and their love rather than Genshiken, the greatest ambition was they would produce a doujin and that was it. Mm. I mean, I know that you can't live up to, you know, Otaku no Video, where their ambition was to create a giant theme park and otakunize the world. (laughs) 
but you know, it's definitely a true story. Definitely a true story. Yeah. Well, and you know, not everybody is necessarily going to want to work in that industry, even if they love the stuff that comes right. out of it. And I suppose that if you are not a professional in that industry, there's only so much that you can contribute, like creatively, mm-hmm. to it. But yeah, it's refreshing to see. And one of the personal things for me, what is nice to see, was that you don't have to necessarily know how to draw to be in the anime industry. But yeah, I mean, they've got sound people, they've got production people. You just have to be willing to not get money. Yes, yeah. you just have to be willing to not be paid. Pretty much, which is why everyone's leaving the industry. That's why yeah. the director does not lose his job. Yeah, I guess so. Who are we going to replace you with? <laughs> yeah, so highly recommended. It's up on Crunchyroll. You can watch all of it now and there's no cliffhangers or anything. I guess that's it. I don't know unless you guys have anything I think you about else. covered it, at least from my perspective. It's one of those things where the reaction to it is one of two things either you haven't seen it or it's just a highly beloved sort of thing you don't really see too many people saying i saw this and this shit sucks right it's really like this partially discovered gem as it were Mm -hmm. and on that note that's going to do it for this episode of the anime world order podcast show number 137 send us an email at animeworldorder at gmail.com Talk about whatever you want. If you want to leave comments on this episode or uh, any of our previous ones, you can also go to the website, www.animeworldorder.com, which has an archive of all the past shows we've ever talked about. I can't make too many guarantees as to whether or not the website will be up. We've lately been having some uh, issues as far as our hosting and their uh, mod security Apache modules. But as of this moment, the website is up and you can leave comments, see our guest appearances on other podcasts, such as one Clarissa mentioned. We'll put up links to some of those comparison images for people curious about Shirabako. Anyway, I've got to duck out because the next issue of Otaku USA magazine is not going to write itself. I'll probably be reviewing Ninja Slayer as well as Blood Blockade Battlefront over at Otaku USA. You can go to otakuusamagazine.com for a subscription. And now is the time. Because there are currently doing the spring discount offer, one-year subscription for $14. You can get them in either print or digital. If you want both print and digital, it's $18 for a year subscription. So go over there to otakuusamagazine.com and read the stuff that we're writing about that keeps this show from coming out more often. Latest issue has Tokyo Ghoul on the cover. I've got some reviews in there. I did a review of Pat Labor the movie, as well as an interview with Meek, formerly known as Mio, who we met at Anime Week in Atlanta 2014. It's in that latest issue. It will soon be out if you haven't already gotten it. They also gave Paul Chapman a full feature to write about high school Sega girls because he was so mad that I said that Sega people were not loved as children, like how Paul Chapman himself was not loved as a child because that's why he had Sega instead of Nintendo. But he's got his rebuttal in that issue. And last but not least, Gerald and I will be guests at Hamacon out in Huntsville, Alabama at the end of June. Clarissa may or may not be there, depending on whether or not she can get the time off. But right now, it doesn't look like she can get the time off. That'll do it. See you next time when I figure out what I'm actually going to review myself. It is a mystery.